It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, May 7th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, state officials continue to urge caution as more businesses open. And, you know, on a personal level, he's saying, you know, those past governors control those pots of money. I should be able to control this pot of money, too. We examine the power struggle between the governor and legislature. Then, without traditional commencement ceremonies, some college graduates are left feeling empty. Plus, in today's book club, a Mississippi blues promoter who captures artists through a camera lens. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Restaurants and bars across the state are preparing to reopen today. Governor Tate Reeves' revised stay-at-home order allows restaurants to resume dine-in service provided they limit capacity and follow safety guidelines like requiring servers to wear masks and gloves. This comes as the state health department has reported nearly 900 new cases this week. Reeves says it's time to remove government control over people's choices, but stresses individuals must still practice responsibility. We are moving towards uh, removing government decision-making for individuals. That does not remove individuals' responsibility to act appropriately, knowing that there is still virus in many communities throughout Mississippi. And so we want to give uh, people the ability to open their small businesses, to rehire people. Uh, we're going to allow uh, individuals to gather in groups of more than 10, but not more than 20, for uh, Little League baseball practice, uh, for soccer practice, to allow these kids to have team sports and get out and at least throw the baseball around. Uh, we'll give every single Mississippian some sort of a sense of, hey, we're moving in the right direction. Uh, and I think that's incredibly important. But we're going to continue to monitor the data. The crisis is not over. We have more work to do. We have significantly more work to do. Uh, I, I don't want to be having these daily press conferences in 30 days or 60 days 
or 90 days. But if we don't get control of the spread, that's exactly what's going to happen. Reeves acknowledges the state is still in the middle of a crisis and Mississippians must help in slowing the spread of the coronavirus. To do so, he suggests residents stay home when they can. The fact is that we are in the middle of a very challenging time in our state. It is time for us to work together to do more good for our fellow Mississippians. It is time for you and me and every other single Mississippian to realize and recognize that this is real. This virus is deadly. It is particularly deadly amongst those that are older and those who have compromised immune systems and those who have pre-existing conditions. But it is also has transmission rates where it is it can be spread by those who never even know they're spreading it by those who, quite frankly, never even know that you have it. So I am strongly encouraging everyone to continue to do all you can, to stay at home when you can. With community transmission a persistent concern, the Mississippi Department of Health is continuing its aggressive testing strategy. Two one-day collection sites will be available tomorrow, one in Panola County at the Panola County Medical Center in Batesville, the other in Clark County at the County EMA in Quitman. Anyone experiencing symptoms related to COVID-19 or who has known or potential exposure to someone with COVID-19 and feels they should be tested must first go through a free screening from a UMMC clinician through the C Spire Health UMMC triage app. Restaurant staff aren't the only ones returning to work today. Lawmakers in the House and Senate are set to resume their suspended session later today. A top priority, considering plans to help businesses hurt by the coronavirus pandemic. The legislature briefly reconvened last week to pass a Senate transfer bill that gives them spending authority over the $1.25 billion in CARES Act relief funds. That bill has since become the center of a clash between lawmakers and Governor Reeves. Bobby Harrison of Mississippi today has been covering the Mississippi legislature since 1996. He joins our Michael Guidry to examine the roots of the tension between the governor and legislative leaders and how this power struggle came to be. Well, there's been fights between the legislative branch and the executive branch. I mean, it's kind of a time-honored tradition in Mississippi, at least it used to be, for the legislative branch to, you know, uh, to claim its, you know, its power over the governor and the legislative branches, you know, has a history of beating up in the governor, but that kind of changed when partisan politics became more of a thing in Mississippi, I guess, starting really with Haley Barber, who was elected in 2003. And so starting then, uh, the the governor had exerted a great deal more influence. And this is kind of, I kind of look at this as the legislature kind of reclaiming some of its traditional power, if you will. Governor Reeves uh, has been in state office for for quite some time, and he makes reference to it during his press briefings. The most recent eight years prior to his inauguration in January were as lieutenant governor, where for part of that time, he was opposite Speaker Philip Gunn uh, in the House. What did you observe about that relationship, and how is that relationship possibly informing what's happening right now? Well, you know, they butted heads quite often, you know, uh, uh, 
Don was more aggressive, especially his membership. Uh, some of his key lieutenants were more aggressive and wanted to do more to deal with the infrastructure issues than Lieutenant Governor Reeves was. I mean, they were looking at possible tax increases that uh, Governor Reeves was, was was not interested in, in, in taking up, and they, they clashed a lot over bond issues. And I, th- I don't think it's any mistake that some of uh, those people he clashed with on those issues, such as uh, – now, House Ways and Means Chair Trey Lamar from the Senatobia and House Pro Tem Jason White uh, from West are some of the most vocal supporters of moving this, uh, ensuring that uh, Governor Reese does not have the sole authority of this money. Uh, one of the things I observed is early on, the governor seemed very collected and, and thoughtful and calm, and that over the last four or five days, He's starting to show, or I guess the the proverbial phrase is, wear his heart on his sleeve when it comes to when it when it comes to the, this this conflict. Why is this conflict generating a, a more emotional response out of the governor than we've seen before this? Well, I mean, I, uh, first of all, I think you're really right. You're, you're you're right about that. You know, the legislature was in session this past Friday uh, uh, to uh, pass a bill to transfer the money to a fund where he could not get to it. And, uh, you know, as the Senate was taking that bill up Friday, he was having his, his near daily press conference. And, you know, during that press conference, I was just stunned. He, you know, he, he, he essentially said that, you know, worst case scenario, what the legislature is doing could kill people, uh, that it was pure policy, uh, a pure political power play by the legislature. He, he was really upset. He admitted that, uh, at a more recent news conference. And he also was saying things that, I mean, I just, he was he was talking about how this legislative action could impact the ability to pay unemployment benefits. And this pot of money really doesn't have anything to do with the pot of money the federal government sent down to pay the unemployment claim. So so that was disingenuous on his part, I, or maybe he was mistaken. I don't know. But, yeah, I think that he sees this as – well, he sees it as part of his duty. And then also I think he, on a just more personal level, is upset that – you know, in three past instances, the legislature complained a little bit, but uh, Haley Barber was able to control two of those pots of money. Then Haley, then uh, uh, Phil Bryant, who followed Haley Barber in office as governor, controlled the BP money. So I think he's, you know, on a personal level, he's saying, you know, those past governors control those pots of money. I should be able to control this pot of money too. Senate Bill twenty-seven seventy-two, the, the 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 bill, kind of at the heart of this conflict. What do you know about it? What exactly is it? What does it do? And um, who has the upper hand? If he decides to veto that bill, based on what happened Friday, he has an uphill battle to to change enough folks to have his veto upheld or sustain, uh, sustained. Uh, you know, no one voted against the bill in the House and the Senate. Two people voted, two members voted against it, and one member voted present. And of course, it takes a two-thirds majority vote in each chamber to override the governor's veto, but Right now, based on last Friday's vote, the legislature is well in hand of having the, those two-thirds votes in both chambers. The governor has to do a lot of work to, uh, to, to, to change enough votes to prevail on this issue. I'm not saying he can't. I've seen it happen before, but it, 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 it is an uphill battle. Now, as far as the bill itself, it was a bill that was already in the legislative process. And, all the, you know, each year the, the, the legislature passes what is known as a transfer bill, which just you know, it's a sort of one of those bills that's sort of deep in the weeds that we don't pay much attention to, but it's an important bill. And it moves funds around to 
make sure the funds are in place to fund all aspects of state government, if you will. And they just amended that transfer bill to take the $1.25 billion that are in question and put it in what is a budget contingency fund uh, that cannot be spent until the legislature appropriates it. And that, I mean, that was all they did. That, I mean, that was the, the extent of what they did Friday. Now, it's important to note that in doing that, they left $100 million in a, up to, up to $1.25 billion in another fund that the governor can get to 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 deal with immediate issues related to the to the pandemic. And that $100 million would be just for the rest of the budget year, which ends on June 30th. And then as they pass the budget for the next uh, budget year starting July 1st, I assume they would put the rest of federal money into various pots to deal with what they think needs to be addressed in terms of the, the, the coronavirus. And they say they want the governor to be involved in that process, but, but that, you know, their claim is that, and it's pretty well bore out through court cases in the Constitution, that the legislature control, controls the purse strings. That's their chief duty and, you know, to appropriate money. And so they're just reclaiming that responsibility, they say, to, to appropriate those funds. When all this is finally laid to rest and resolved, do you predict or do you foresee any sustained damage to the relationship between the Republican leader in the executive office and the Republican leadership in the, in the two chambers of, of the legislature? Well, uh, <laughs> Billy McCoy, who was speaker for two terms, the last Democrat speaker once told me, you don't want to lose too many battles in this building. <laughs> I mean, and, you know, he's a governor, so he, he can he can work with the legislature and, and come out on the other end of this with uh, with sort of a his power intact if uh, he plays his cards right and but if he, but if he decides to go all out with a veto and you know and he continues talking about how legislators are going to kill people if you know under the worst case scenario I mean you know those are strong words and you know those could be words that haunt him for a good bit of his term. Bobby Harrison is the senior. Capital reporter with Mississippi Today. Bobby, thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up, without traditional commencement ceremonies, some college graduates are left feeling empty. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Traditional commencement ceremonies in Mississippi have been canceled or postponed because of the coronavirus pandemic. Although graduates are beginning to receive their degrees through virtual celebrations, not being able to walk across the stage is disappointing for some and their families. MPB's Ashley Norwood reports. LaQuisha Davis is first in her family to graduate from college. Whew, I'm not even trying to cry right now. My family was known for the ones that I would have kids. Oh, they're not going to school. They, none of their kids want to make it. Davis says she's disappointed. Her friends and loved ones won't see her graduate. Some were planning to travel from as far as Chicago just to see her walk across the stage. I'm the first of my family to actually finish something without giving up. Sometimes I wanted to give up 
but I did because I had those people to keep encouraging me. It's, 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 it hurts. Davis is receiving a bachelor's degree in professional studies with a minor in family studies and psychology from Mississippi University for Women in Columbus. The Yazoo City native says she wants to become a counselor one day. Graduating with a 3.0 average, Davis says this win wasn't only for her, but for her entire family as well. I broke the chain because I don't feel like no one should ever go through someone tells that you can't. Graduating from college is a milestone for many African-American families. Historically, slavery and segregation limited their access to attaining higher education. According to the Post-Secondary National Policy Institute, African-American enrollment in college is catching up to their white counterparts. But there has been less progress in closing the degree attainment gap. In 2018, 23% of the black population aged 25 to 29 held a bachelor's degree or higher, compared to 44% of the white population in the same age group. Gerald Briggs is president of Mississippi Valley State University in Itabina. He says in the absence of in-person commencement ceremonies, it's still critically important universities acknowledge student achievement. Life is full of chapters, and getting that college degree is just one of those chapters, and to be able to fulfill that is just so important. So I realize, and I think we all realize, to be able to acknowledge this accomplishment uh, at this time, even though it has to be virtual, is extremely important. Valley State, along with Mississippi University for Women, University of Mississippi, and Jackson State, will award degrees virtually this Saturday. Kirk Williams, born in Chicago but raised in Jackson, is receiving a Master's of Arts in Urban and Regional Planning from Jackson State. He says he's familiar with the feeling of overcoming obstacles. From me being homeless with my siblings or me being shot, almost losing my life, everything I went through kind of dimmed my hope in the future. It's like I had to live at the moment of now. Somehow I just didn't see a way out of it. Now that Williams is graduating, he says he's focused on using the degree he worked so hard to earn to serve his community. For those that understand the true significance of why you went to school or, or why you took those hard hours of studying, late night burning oil, trying to make sure your assignment is on time, a good deed is always noticed. And the doors that you were seeking for eventually open for you. Before the coronavirus pandemic, Williams expected to share this moment of success with his daughter. She's a high school senior who would have been graduating the same day as her dad. Despite not being able to walk across the stage or celebrate with family and friends, Williams says this journey of life has been both challenging and rewarding. Ashley Norwood, MPB News. Coming up in today's book club, a Mississippi blues promoter who captured the artist through a camera lens. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you ever miss one of our locally produced shows or want to simply hear it again, you can find what you need at mpbonline.org or download our podcast app to your smartphone. MPB programming is on your schedule at mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. 
journalist, magazine editor, blues promoter, blues artist's agent, and photographer are some of the hats worn by Dick Waterman. While Mississippi may claim him as their own, he was actually born in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Perhaps most notable about this 84-year-old icon are his photographs revealing the private moments of the artist he championed. Tammy Turner is the author of Dick Waterman, A Life in Blues. He grew up in a wealthy Jewish family in Plymouth. His father was a doctor, and growing up, he knew nothing of blues. Nobody in the family played blues music. After he got out of college and was working as a a freelance writer and a sports writer for a newspaper, he was drawn to the Greenwich Village scene and, of course, folk blues. He became involved in this just looking for a story because a young man named Phil Spiro had a lead on the sort of long-lost Delta blues musician, Sun House. And on a lark, they decided to go try to find him. And Dick was just looking for a good story and thought that would be a good story, whether they found him or not, hoping (laughs) that they would. He, Phil, and then Nick Pearls, a third man, they set off for Mississippi in the middle, height of the Civil Rights Movement, in a Volkswagen and drove right down to the Mississippi Delta looking for Sun House. Ultimately, they find him, although it's in Rochester, New York, where they find him. And Dick does indeed get a story, but that's how he also gets a career. He also managed Sun House, and he managed some other notable people like Bonnie Raitt and Buddy Guy. Certainly the title of your book is apt, Dick Waterman, A Life in Blues, because that's what his career has been. He has immersed himself in blues as a manager or as a photographer. When did that start in his career? The first time he really picked up a camera was when he was handed a camera at the newspaper. He was doing some sports writing, of course, and taking photos was just part of the process. He had promoted a concert for Mississippi John Hurt, and he went and took some photos of Hurt during the last performance of that week. And he sort of just always had a camera with him, It wasn't this conscious decision to just document everything he was doing, but he had a camera, and so when he and Sun House went on tour and when he was backstage at Newport, he was just around people, and he had his camera, and he would take photos. And he really only took photos through sort of the early to mid-'70s. After that, he sort of put his camera down and was so busy with Bonnie Raitt's career that he didn't take photos again really until the 90s after he had retired. Those early photos, I guess probably like his later ones, are in demand now. Yes. I don't think he ever thought he would have a career or necessarily an income from photography. He published a book in 2003 called Between Midnight and Day, and it really was sort of a retrospective of just some of the best of these candid photos that he had taken of these early blues artists. Since then, the photography aspect of his career has grown considerably, and he has his own website and and sells prints of these original photos. But it wasn't something that he had necessarily planned and has really only sort of picked up again and is still doing. Did his love of music itself grow as his career progressed? His love of music grew because of the Greenwich scene, the folk and blues music that he heard there. It's kind of like each person that he managed, it kind of caused him to branch out in that respect because the earliest person, of course, was Sun House. When he got Sun House a record deal on Columbia, that was just phenomenal. 
And when some of these other older blues artists that were sort of trying to reignite their careers saw that, they sought him out. You know, Skip James and then Robert Pete Williams and, and, and the others that he worked with. What might people be surprised to learn about Dick in your book? Well, I think his background, just the fact that he didn't come from the sort of background where he knew anything about blues, and how sort of the improbable journey that his life took in order for him to actually find Sun House and then become a manager. I think also sometimes when people think about the entertainment industry, they see it as a very cutthroat industry, which it is. I think the one thing that you'll find that's consistent about Dick's career and anybody that you talked to that worked with him was that he was incredibly honest. He put the artist first, even when it was to his own financial detriment. If he booked a gig for an artist and the people that were supposed to pay them did not come through, he would pay them out of his own pocket. He worked tirelessly for fair compensation. He also fought tirelessly for royalties and rights that were due them that sometimes were withheld because they did not know how to pursue that avenue themselves. The book is called Dick Waterman, A Life in Blues, and we've been speaking with its author, Dr. Tammy Turner. Thank you so much. Thank you, Karen. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.